Manned and unmanned aircraft operating safely together, this is still an air traffic control challenge. And it's a step closer to a solution thanks to an award-winning project at a federally funded research and development center, an FFRDC. My next guest has the details. He's a retired Air Force officer, now a group leader at MIT's Lincoln Laboratory, Wes Olson. Mr. Olson, good to have you on. Oh, thank you, Tom. It's good to be here. And let's begin with the problem that you were trying to solve here, because uh, the FAA at this point, I think, keeps drones out of the airspace altogether. But it sounds like inevitably we're going to have to be able to find a way for those types of aircraft to coexist. Yeah, exactly. So the, the whole goal of this project is to increase aviation safety. We in the U.S. have one of the safest air transportation systems in the world. We're a world leader. And our goal as we introduce new entrants is what we call them, whether they're larger uncrewed aircraft, smaller uncrewed aircraft, drones as the public would call them, or advanced or urban air mobility, the new concept we're going to have highly automated vehicles transporting the public to reduce congestion and, and drive time. And all of these need to be integrated safely. And our experience in aviation is that although the air traffic control system is very safe, there needs to be a final safety net at that last ditch moment to prevent a collision between two vehicles. Whether those vehicles are large transport category aircraft or smaller ones, this is essential to maintain aviation safety. So we were trying to develop a flexible, adaptable system that would meet the needs of current aircraft, but also future aircraft with new methods, we call it surveillance, of knowing the location and identity of those other aircraft, and have a common framework that's easy to implement and easy for the FAA to certify and okay. for the international community to accept because this is a worldwide system. Right. So and it's called goal. it's called the Airborne Collision Avoidance System X, ACAS, I guess, or ACAS yes. X. Just in layman's terms, briefly, how does it work? Well, ACAS X works. It's it's a modular system. So the first part of the system is determining the location of the other aircraft. Now for larger aircraft, there is a transponder on board much like the toll transponder on your car. So one aircraft would send out a signal to all the nearby aircraft, they'd respond. And based on that information of the altitude and location, the system could decide whether or not an alert is necessary. For smaller aircraft, there might be an onboard radar to detect these aircraft that don't have a transponder. Also with advanced technology using GPS, aircraft can broadcast their position twice a second. So that information can be used. So our system takes in that surveillance information correlates it if there's multiple sources, determines which is the best source, and also determines how certain that is. Just because I think I know where the other aircraft is doesn't mean that's actually true. There's some level of uncertainty, even with GPS. So we calculate that uncertainty, pass it to what we call the threat logic, which determines whether or not there's a threat, and takes into account multiple competing objectives. So we want to be safe, but we don't want to alert all the time. If you've ever had it a alerting system in your car that went off all the time. It's very annoying. It's annoying to air traffic controllers and pilots. So we use machine learning techniques to come up with the optimal solution that balances safety with this need to save, you know, to integrate these vehicles in the air. And that information, what to do, whether it's to climb or descend, turn left, turn right, or potentially even in the future, speed up or slow down, is passed to either the flight crew operating the vehicle or to the automated systems that control the vehicle. And that right. information, these maneuvers are also coordinated. So if you've ever been walking down a hallway and encountered somebody else, you both go left, you go right. Well, we want to avoid that in the air. So these systems also send a message to the nearby aircraft saying, I'll go this way. And then the other aircraft would make a complementary maneuver. It also takes into account multiple aircraft. So we could solve 
you know, 5, 10, which is very uncommon, very uncommon, but we can solve multiple competing conflicts at the same time. So that's, in essence, how the system works. I sense a lot of artificial intelligence and just a lot of mathematics running very fast in all of this. It is does take advantage of modern computer science techniques. This is a very complicated problem. And if we were just to solve this via classical methods where we tried to look at the optimal action at every point in time, that would exceed the number of atoms and molecules in the universe. So we use advanced computer science techniques as well as machine learning techniques to make this a tractable problem, which means we can solve it rapidly and the end product can fit on an aircraft. So it, it doesn't take massive computing power, especially for the smaller aircraft, the drones. And it's also the case that, you know, with these smaller vehicles, it can operate on a ground system. So it's flexible. It could operate in the ground or in the air to provide that same level of capability. We're speaking with Wes Olson. He's a group leader of the Surveillance Systems Group at the MIT Lincoln Laboratory. And what is the status of this with respect to it becoming operationalized? Because FAA has a very long process before things are actually relied on in day-to-day use. So where do we stand in all of this? So that's an excellent question. And, you know, people from the outside looking in think it's a very slow process, but I would frame it that's a very deliberate process to ensure that new systems are very safe and that they're really examined and scrutinized to a high level of detail to ensure that that safety can be maintained across a wide variety of conditions. And it's also the case, as you pointed out earlier, that these are international systems. You know, for example, even traffic within the U.S. often flies over Canadian airspace. Or if you go overseas, you want everything to work the same. So the Federal Aviation Administration has been coordinating with the International Civil Aviation Organization, or ICAO, to implement ACAS-X. And there are a number of different variants. So ACAS-X started to improve collision avoidance for transport category aircraft, the aircraft that, you know, you're listening public flies on every day. And that system was finished in 2018. It improved safety by over 20% while reducing nuisance alerts by over 60%. That has been approved by the FAA. It was recently approved by ICAO for international use. The European rulemaking is a little bit longer than U.S. rulemaking, so it's still being finalized within Europe, but that system should be flying very shortly. We also developed a system for the larger uncrewed aircraft. Think about Global Hawk Predator-sized aircraft. That was finished in 2020, and we are currently working within the International Civil Aviation Organization to get acceptance of that safety standard to allow, allow worldwide operation. So that is in progress should be approved in the next six to 12 months. Um, We just finished the standard for the system for smaller uncrewed aircraft or drones, if you will, to facilitate commercial operations. The FAA will need to implement that guidance. This small drone community is, things are evolving rapidly in terms of what operations are intended to take place. The companies are developing concepts but this capability would be usable. Um, We are currently also working with some other regional partners like the Massachusetts Department of Transportation to integrate ACAS SXU for the small unmanned aircraft into their operations. And finally, we're currently in the middle of developing a variant for, we call it ACAS XR, for rotorcraft to include the advanced and urban air mobility aircraft. Right now, that is scheduled to be completed in 2025, and I would just mention that this is not MIT Lincoln Laboratory doing this. We are sponsored, you know, really under the visionary leadership in this case of the Federal Aviation Administration, 
who has funded this work for over a decade and is strongly championed in the community. And we've had strong participation from the aircraft manufacturers, the avionics manufacturers, the pilot unions, the air traffic controller unions, to make sure that this is an acceptable system. So we should see that system for advanced air mobility in time for their operations, and that should be finished in around the 2025. And just to detail here, some aircraft that is uncrewed is nevertheless piloted, but remotely. Others really are drones or operating more or less autonomously. Big difference, correct? That is correct. There is a big difference. Almost all of the uncrewed aircraft right now are operated by a pilot, and that's a requirement. There needs to be a human in the loop to oversee safety and be legally responsible for the flight. These more autonomous operations where no human is involved are in the future, and the Federal Aviation Administration and the aviation community is working to understand how to do that safely. But all of these operations currently do involve a human whether they're in the vehicle or on the ground, um, and they could be fairly remote. And a final question, does the next-gen air traffic control system, and I'm not positive of the total status of that rollout, it seems like it was kind of stuck in two zones for a few years, does that figure into the deployment of this system, of the avoidance? Uh, So this system was designed to be compatible with the next-gen concepts. And many of these have rolled out over time. It takes a long time to implement something in the aviation system. Unlike a computer upgrade, we can't just shut down the airspace for a week and switch everybody over to a new procedure. It has to be rolled in incrementally, which is a challenge for many of the systems to accommodate aircraft that aren't equipped with new technology and those that are. But the compatibility is very important. We don't want to implement go to the effort of implementing new procedures and find out that they're not viable because other safety critical systems like collision avoidance say alert too often or don't support those operations. So in ACAS-X, we've taken into account all of the future operations that we know about, but designed it to be flexible, to provide variable alerting based on a specific type of operation. So as new operations are implemented and the objectives about the target level of safety or the reduced separation can be defined, we can tune that system using our machine learning algorithms relatively quickly to adapt and provide operations, you know, to support those new operations in an effective manner. Wes Olson is group leader of the Surveillance Systems Group at the MIT Lincoln Laboratory. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much, Tom. It's been my pleasure. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Fly the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. 
Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day jobs, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, 
I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders, and then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals, um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I 
had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So, So there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.